welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series five and episode seven entitled The Sign of Jonah. We're continuing from the uh, story we were telling in the last episode. Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 12 and we're going to study verses 38 to 45 during the course of this episode. This is a very tense time in the life of Jesus and uh, the previous episode set the scene very dramatically. But before we get to that, we just remind ourselves also of the wider context. Series three uh, described Jesus' first Galilean tour of ministry, traveling around, healing, teaching, preaching, becoming very well known, performing many miracles and making a really big impact. Then in series four, uh, we looked at the Sermon on the Mount and the ethical teaching that formed the discipleship community. And now in series five, we're in the second tour of Galilee. We've seen a variety of different incidents and miracles and conversations and social events and discussions already, but none more significant than the one that we looked at in the last episode when we were in an earlier part of Matthew chapter 12 from verse 22 to 37. So I'm just going to quickly remind us of what happened then, the key event, not all the teaching that followed, but the key event, uh, because that uh, is required to explain the passage that we're going to look at now. As mentioned in the last episode, one of the big themes of the Gospels is the emerging conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment as represented by First of all, the ruling council, religious council in Jerusalem, known as the Sanhedrin, which comes more into focus and into the story later on in the life of Jesus, but is always there in the background. And particularly a group called the Pharisees, who are closely linked with them and have developed a real opposition to Jesus in the opening months of his ministry. They've been watching what he's been doing. They've been listening to what he's been saying. They've been questioning him and challenging him and accusing him of not obeying the Jewish law of Moses and also not obeying all their own uh, traditional laws that they developed over a number of years and which were now uh, recommended for all Jews to follow. So this conflict has been gradually increasing. And in the last episode, I sketched out that story a bit more fully. And it reached a a climax in the incident that triggers all the teaching of the last episode and the teaching of this episode. This incident, just to uh, briefly restate it, was a particular miracle that took place that led to a very powerful response from the crowd and then a very strong counter-response from the Pharisees who were present. The miracle was that a man who was both blind and mute and also suffering the oppression of evil spirits that were causing his illnesses uh, was healed by Jesus. He cast out the spirit and the man could immediately see, he could immediately speak, and he then had normal physical health from that time onwards. Now, the response, as we discussed in the last episode from the crowd, was a kind of spontaneous aspiration and question 
Could this be the son of David, they said. And this is going back to verse 23 of the chapter, Matthew 12. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? And as I explained last time, this is basically a way of saying, could this be the Messiah? Because they believed that the Messiah would be a biological descendant of King David and would in some way take up the monarchy or the throne or the rulership of Israel in the same way that David and his descendants did for a period of time before they were removed. In fact, the country was divided up into different spheres of authority, um, but ultimately the Romans were in control using uh, some puppet kings in different areas like Herod Antipas, who ruled in Galilee where they were at the time. So the monarchy of David wasn't functioning at all, hadn't been for hundreds of years. Could this be the son of David is basically affirming the uniqueness of Jesus and the crowd is beginning to think maybe he is our Messiah. And one of the things that triggered them to think that was the remarkable nature of this miracle, healing the blind and the mute, which was often considered to be a miracle that only the Messiah could perform. And this was based on such verses in the Old Testament as Isaiah 35 verse 5. Now we looked at that in some detail in the last episode. If you haven't heard the last episode, it's well worth going back and listening to that because it connects very precisely with what we're talking about today. But then the counter response from the Pharisees was to completely refute and disagree with the suggestion that Jesus was the Messiah, the son of David. They said quite the contrary. It is only by Beelzebub the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So they ascribe to Jesus the status of a false messiah operating under uh, the power of evil spirits. Now that was an incredibly dramatic thing to do, incredibly confrontational, incredibly specific and incredibly problematical for the crowd because they were wondering and thinking one thing and they're uh, religious leaders were telling them another. And so that was the trigger for a series of very tough sayings that Jesus carried on to teach in the passage that we studied last time. He contradicted the Pharisees saying, you know, why would uh, Satan want to destroy his own kingdom by allowing one demonic power to drive out another? It's absurd. And he, by contrast, said that as he was operating by the Spirit of God, and that meant that the kingdom of God was coming. And the kingdom of God meant that there would be a king, and that king would be a descendant of David. And so the expression of the crowd, can this be the son of David, is very appropriate to the context. So all those teachings took place immediately after that moment of confrontation. And as we continue the story now, we see that the Pharisees are not willing to back off quickly from their accusation. And they ask him a question. Now, questions can often be trick questions, can't they? Have you ever had that experience? People are questioning you in order to trip you up. This was very common practice in ancient Israel in discussions and debate about what was right and wrong and what particular laws might actually mean. So they ask him a question. And we're going to pick up the story 
with the question. So just verse 38 to start with. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. This really is an extraordinary question. A sign means simply a miracle that demonstrates Jesus' authority. This seems such an odd question, given that Jesus has just performed a miracle which acts as a sign because the healing of the blind and the mute was understood commonly to be a sign of the Messiah. Only the Messiah could fulfill these types of miracles. And this was based on a verse in Isaiah 35 and other texts. So he's just performed a sign that sort of indicates his identity. And not only that, he's performed hundreds of miracles. I mean, literally hundreds, or shall we say more accurately, thousands of miracles. And we know that the Pharisees have observed many of them. We actually have record of them being in the crowds on a number of occasions when miracles have been performed. So what are they talking about? Well, we get a little clue as to what they might be talking about here uh, when we see a similar question asked a little bit later on, also recorded in Matthew. Matthew 16, verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, it may be that this first question has a similar intention to that subsequent question. Now, a sign from heaven means probably something operating in the natural world rather than a healing, more like a cosmic sign, an earthquake, lightning, some miracle that happens in the sky, so to speak. Because the Jews did have expectations that God would shake the cosmos when the Messiah came, there would be judgment and there would be remarkable events in the cosmos, in the planets and the stars and so forth. There is that trend of expectation in some of the Old Testament prophets and it might be that the Pharisees had this idea in mind but on the face of it it seems absurd to ask for a sign when Jesus has been performing hundreds and thousands of miracles that act as a sign. And then Jesus goes on to say what sort of sign they're going to experience. Verse 39, we'll read from 39 to 42. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon 
is here. So Jesus says that something's going to happen which will recapitulate or reproduce an aspect of the story of the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. And that's the aspect that he has in mind, which he states here, is the fact that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish. Let's have a think about this. So the prophet Jonah is well known in the Old Testament. There's a book named after him, a very short book, which is in what we call the Minor Prophets or the Book of the Twelve, which tells the story of this man. It's a fairly well-known story if you move in Christian circles. It's well known to people brought up in Christian families who've experienced Sunday school teaching because it's a very dramatic and extraordinary story. Jonah was a prophet uh, of Israel who was called by God to go and preach to uh, the Assyrian people in their capital city, Nineveh. Now, the Assyrians at the time were the arch enemies of Israel. They were the regional superpower who were actually threatening to invade and capture the whole country. And they did occasionally incur into Israelite territory at the time. They were hostile to the Israelites and uh, there was no love between Israel and the Assyrians. But Jonah was called to go to their capital city and to preach about the Jewish God Yahweh and to invite them into a relationship with him. Really an extraordinary thing he was asked to do, and which would have required incredible bravery. He didn't have that bravery. In fact, he ran away. He left the country of Israel, but rather than heading to Assyria, to the east, he went due west. He got down to the sea, took a boat and headed off for the Western Mediterranean. And this is the context of the story of the great fish. We don't exactly know what fish it was. Uh, and the story of the storm on board the ship and the fact that Jonah was considered somehow or other to be a troublemaker by the, the ship's crew uh, who may have caused this storm, threw him um, overboard and then he ends up in the belly of this huge fish for three days and three nights before it spews him up onto the land. And he continues on to Nineveh and successfully carries out his mission, having had a bit of a rethink and changed his mind and repented of his unbelief. That's essentially the story. And the Ninevites respond very favorably to the message of Yahweh. But in the middle of that is this key dramatic moment when Jonah is literally in the belly of the fish and only miraculously survives. Now Jesus says that something will happen to him that's similar to what happens to Jonah. Just as Jonah is hidden away invisibly for three days and three nights and then re-emerges, so Jesus is going to be hidden away for three days and three nights, and then he's going to re-emerge. Now, this expression, three days and three nights, is an expression used by uh, the Jews in their culture to describe either the full or the part of three days. And in Jesus' case, it was the part of three days. There was, because it's a reference to 
his death and his resurrection. If we take his death to take place uh, on what we would call a Friday, then he was buried in the tomb on Friday evening and he lay in the tomb all the way through Saturday. And then at the beginning of Sunday, he rose again from the dead. Then we have parts of three days and three nights. The Jews would have understood uh, this use of language. So Jesus is pointing out that the sign for the Pharisees of his identity, the greatest sign, is yet to come and is a sign that is quite different from individual healings or miracles. But it's a sign which will divide them because either they will believe or they will not believe when Jesus emerges from the hiddenness of being in the tomb. So just as Jonah emerged, so Jesus will emerge. And the question for them will be, what will you do at that point? Now, this, of course, is a reference uh, to his resurrection, which is described very fully later on in the Gospels. And we'll come to that as we uh, get to the very end of the story. But we all know where the story leads. It leads to Jesus' death and his miraculous physical resurrection on the third day, the Sunday after the Friday. And so Jesus is saying that's the sign that they're going to be given. But he's questioning that even if they get that sign, they're not going to believe because they've already got this hostile, negative attitude that has been exemplified by the events that happened in the previous episode that I described just a few moments ago. They've set their face against Jesus. And even this one great sign is not going to make any difference to them. That's the implication of the way that Jesus is talking. And he goes on to say that sometimes Gentiles, people who don't have the revelation of the Jewish people, respond more quickly and more effectively to God's revelation than the Jewish people do, even though they've got much less revelation than the Jewish people have. So, for example, in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So let's go back to the Jonah story again. The Jonah story is not just about Jonah's exploits, his attempt to run away, and then he came back and followed through on God's will. No, the point of the story is far beyond the person of Jonah. The point of the story is that he goes to Nineveh and according to Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4, what we find is that as he proclaims that Yahweh is the true God of the universe and that people should believe in him, as he proclaims that in Jonah chapter 3, there's a tremendous response. He says he warns them, 40 days and uh, more and Nineveh will be overthrown by judgment. But, but it says in uh, Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. So they responded in faith to very limited revelation. They just had Jonah come and speak to them totally out of the blue. No context, no known connection with the uh, Jewish religion. 
They were hostile to the nation of Israel and suddenly they responded in large numbers, including their rulers, to the message that Jonah brought. So Jesus is saying, if you keep that in mind, sometimes Gentiles, like the men of Nineveh, respond to less revelation than the Pharisees have given far more positively. And so on the day of judgment, they will be seen to be vindicated. They will have had faith in the God of Israel on the basis of Jonah's preaching. And the Pharisees who personally knew Jesus and saw him and traveled around with him, saw his miracles, could interact with him and talk to him, rejected him. They had much more revelation than the Ninevites had had. And then Jesus goes on and uses another interesting example. He describes a lady called the Queen of the South. This is a reference to 1 Kings chapter 10 and to a monarch called the Queen of Sheba, who comes from an African or an Arab kingdom to the south of Israel. We don't exactly know where she comes from. And she comes to the throne of the great King Solomon at the time of the height of his powers with enormous material splendor, beautiful palace, beautiful temple, and an amazingly wonderful place to come to. And she visits Jerusalem. She's interested in who he is and who his God is. And having spoken to Solomon, having looked at everything that he's got in his kingdom, having seen his faith, having seen his religion, she declares in 1 Kings 10 verse 9, Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And through these words, and no doubt many others, the New Testament interprets them as uh, indicating that she had genuine faith, that she became a believer in the God of Israel at that time. So she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. So Jesus is saying the Pharisees are in a very, very dangerous position. They've got far more revelation than the Queen of Sheba had, the Queen of the South, far more revelation than the Ninevites had when Jonah preached and many other Gentiles who've come into the kingdom of God. But they're rejecting the obvious evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. And there will be a great risk to them if they do that. Let's return to the text now and just look at the last section, verses 43 to 45. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept, clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. This is how it will be with this wicked generation. So Jesus uses the metaphor of a house to describe a person and indeed, in a sense, the whole nation of Israel. A house that's cleaned, 
is like a person who has evil spirits driven out of him. And that clean house needs to be maintained. But if it's not filled with anything else, then the evil spirits can return and they can even multiply, bring others with them. It's a very vivid metaphorical image of an individual person, but also an image of the nation of Israel. Because the message of Jesus here is that if the nation of Israel does not fill itself with faith in the Messiah, after he has evicted demonic forces from people and from the land, then those demonic forces will return in greater strength in times to come and deceive and destroy the nation, leading to its judgment. The good works that Jesus has done won't have any lasting impact on the nation unless faith follows. Well, we've heard this message before. Uh, Jesus has given this message in a number of different contexts. But here he's talking about the nation as a whole. And he's talking to the spiritual leaders of the nation, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who represent the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council in Jerusalem. And so he warns that this generation, that's the Jewish people living at the time, particularly the authorities, will experience the fact that the good things he's done in the land won't have any lasting impact unless they have faith. And if they don't have faith, their nation will be in an even worse position than it was before Jesus came. And that's his prediction. Now, this prediction comes up in several different contexts in Jesus' teaching. And in later contexts, we get more detail on this. So we'll come back to this theme. But it's worth saying now, just in brief, that within a few decades of Jesus dying, Israel experienced a terrible, terrible trauma and what appears to be a judgment of God. They started a rebellion against the Romans in 66 AD. That's uh, 30 to 35 years after Jesus died. And that rebellion was defeated four years later in 70 AD by the Romans who brought in very large numbers of military reinforcements from around the empire. And they crushed the rebellion brutally. Uh, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple and they sent huge numbers of Jews into exile. They destroyed or sought to destroy the national identity of the whole uh, nation. So this reality of the threat of a future judgment uh, is implied in this statement. This is developed in other parts of Jesus' teaching more fully. But the key point is this. There is a great risk turning down an invitation to believe and to follow Jesus and to turn against him as forcibly as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing at that time. My concluding reflections are that it's always dangerous to ignore the evidence for Jesus as the Messiah, the evidence which we have available to us. It's dangerous for you and for me as well. We need to face up to the evidence and in particular, we need to face up to the key evidence, which is the so-called sign of Jonah, the death 
and resurrection of Jesus. Why did he die? What happened on the cross? How did he come to life again? Did he come to a resurrection life? What does it mean that Jesus has risen physically from the dead? These questions have to be answered. We don't have to wait for another sign to believe in God. We've got plenty of signs there in the Gospels. What we need to do is to study those signs and to follow where they lead. So thank you for listening to this episode. I look forward to sharing another one with you soon. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.